You know what I try to avoid more than anything? It's something that happens every Tuesday night without fail. It's something that I cannot stand. And my wonderful wife is so good at reminding me every Tuesday night that this thing has to happen. I absolutely hate it. And that is taking out the trash. You know, I don't like thinking about taking out the trash. I don't like talking about taking out the trash, but someone's got to deal with the trash. And in my house, that is me. Now, we're talking about depression today. And, you know, for the most part, depression isn't something we like to think about. It's not something we like to talk about, but we do have to deal with it, especially with everything that we're facing right now. I mean, depression is just rampant. You know, According to the National Institute of Mental Health, and remember, this is pre-COVID, they say that between 20 and 25% of all adults at some point in their lifetime are going to suffer from major depression. Now, major depression is defined as two weeks where your mood is, is causing basic functions in your life to not happen right, like eating, sleeping, concentrating, ability to go to work, things like that. So that's, that's crazy. I mean, that's a, that's a big, big number. So we either are suffering from depression ourselves or we know someone who is. And there are lots of people in the Bible who suffered from depression. In 1 Kings 19.4, we see Elijah. It says, Elijah came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and check this out, prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. The prophet Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, in 2018, he says, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? And the great King David, he says in Psalm 32, three and four, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You know, maybe those words that you just heard, they capture some of how you're feeling right now. Or maybe someone comes to mind that, that you care so much about and you know that they're just going through it. What I want to let you know is, is depression is such a difficult thing. And, and if you're going through it, I am so sorry for what you're dealing with right now. Um, in fact, I, I want to let you know that this series is called Avoid It, but this title of this sermon is not avoiding depression because we're not really going to be able to avoid it, but we want to talk about how do we overcome it? How do we push through? And if you struggle with depression, I just want to let you know this sermon, this is not going to be like the, the, the magic bullet that, that solves everything for you. In fact, if you're struggling with depression right now, the things that we're going to talk about today, you probably have already heard and you probably already know these things. So I want you to see this as more of a loving, gentle reminder and an encouragement from the Bible. We're going to look at Psalm 77 today. And though King David wrote many of the Psalms, Psalm 77 was actually written by one of David's worship leaders named Asaph. And Asaph writes in Psalm 77, starting in verse one, 
He says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. So here we see Asaph and he is going through it. He is low. And what we see right off the bat is he cries out to God. You know, I don't know that I have a lot of spiritual gifts and talents, but I definitely have the spiritual gift of crying out. <laughs> and um, it's not just crying out to God. I mean, I will just cry out about just about anything. So if I get a splinter, if I stub my toe, if I get a paper cut, um, people are going to hear about it. And, and my wife is very quick to <laughs> remind me of this. Um, and, and I got to tell you, the man cold, that's the thing, man. Like I get man colds all the time. Okay. I have no shame in crying out. And the same is true when it comes to my relationship with God. So when I'm going through something, when I am struggling, I cry out to God. And I wanna encourage you to do the same because it is so healthy to cry out when you're hurting, when you're struggling, when you're down. Um, we cannot suppress these thoughts, these feelings that we have. We've got to get them out. So for me, my preferred method is actually paper and pen. I love to jot down my thoughts and it just really helps me to, to, to get those out and to be able to focus and, uh, and, and just give them to God. So I want to ask you, are you crying out to God? Now, if you're really struggling, you may say, I, I don't even have the motivation. I don't even have the energy. In fact, Derek, I don't even have the words right now to be able to cry out to God. I don't even know what I would say. What I would tell you is this. The book of Psalms is an incredible gift to you. It's 150 prayers to God, 40% of which are Psalms of lament, of crying out to God. When you don't have the words, when you don't have the strength, when you don't have the motivation, just turn to the Psalms and let the words of those psalmists be your words to God. Cry out to God. So in verse seven, Asaph continues crying out to God. And I want you to notice just how extreme these words are that he uses. He says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? Now, what's so interesting about what Asaph is doing right here is that he is, this language that he's using, words like forever and never, basically what psychologists would call this is a downward thought spiral or catastrophic thinking. So he's initially cried out to God and, and his thoughts have kind of spiraled to a place of extremes, to an all or nothing place. And, um, you know, this is a very normal thing that we do. It's just often we're not really conscious that that's what's happening to us. We're having this downward thought spiral. But think about it. You do this all the time. I mean, at some point in the past year, you sneezed or you coughed. And where did your mind immediately go? That's right. That is 
catastrophic thinking. And when you really struggle with major clinical depression, this is one of those things that just is, is so prevalent and is so common. And this is where Asaph finds himself. But then in verse 12, we see a turning point. And I want you to notice because these first three words mark this dramatic shift in Asaph's thinking. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. And what Asaph does is in the midst of this downward spiral of thoughts that he's in, he takes a moment, he recognizes, and he shifts what he's thinking. Essentially, what he does in that moment is he trades in these catastrophic thoughts. He trades in these lies that he's believing for something else. He changes his focus. He trades it in for something more positive, something true that God says to him. There's such power in trading in. Now, let me show you my trade-in. I know what you're thinking. How could a pastor possibly be rocking a ride this nice? I know, this is a sweet minivan, or as we call it in my family, the Midnight Runner. I'll never forget the day that we traded in our old van and we brought this home. Man, everyone was so excited. You remember that feeling, don't you? When you trade in something old that you no longer have use for and you get something brand new, it's awesome. You know, that day almost didn't happen because our old minivan, our old Honda Odyssey, it was... It was really in need of, of being traded in, but I just, I was holding on to it, man. I just felt like it had a lot of good miles left. And so we were kind of constantly having these arguments in, in our family. And I was the only one who wasn't ready to trade in the old van. And it was, it wasn't until we went to New York on a trip and eventually we literally ended up in a ditch. <laughs> that was like my final sign. It was like God was telling me, Derek, come on. It's time to trade that thing in. You know, there's two things that have to take place for a successful trade-in. The first thing is you have to first believe that the, the old thing no longer is worth holding onto. So when it comes to our thoughts, we have to believe whatever, whatever we're thinking, that it's no longer helpful to us. Those thoughts are no longer serving us well. We have to be ready and willing to let go of them before we can trade them in for something better. The second thing is to have a successful trade-in, you have to have someone who's helping you with it. Trade-ins don't just happen by themselves. There, there's always someone who's, who's at work with the transaction. So who do you know? Who's in your support network that when you're trying to trade in those negative thoughts for positive ones, those lies that, that we believe about ourselves for what's actually true, who do you have friends or family members who can speak positive, life-giving truth into you? Maybe it's actually you need someone who's, who's a professional, a counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist who can help you to trade in the negative for the positive. You know, I remember a psychologist saying one time, you can't control those initial thoughts that come into your mind, 
but you can control what happens next, what you decide to do with them. Now, that is way easier said than done a lot of times, but still the principle here is this. We start out by crying out to God. Then we trade in our negative thoughts for our positive thoughts. So cry out, trade in, and finally look up. Asaph continues, verse 13. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Joseph and Jacob. I want you to notice where Asaph is looking. He's looking up. He's looking to God. You know, it is so easy when we're in the midst of, of, of the struggle of our despair. It is so easy to, to be looking down, to be focused on everything that's around us, our circumstances, our situations, the stress, the negativity. But when, when our focus is there, it leaves us powerless. It leaves us defeated. And what we see in the Psalms over and over and over again is this crying out to God, but then in the midst of whatever it is that the psalmist is facing, the psalmist looks up to the goodness, the greatness, the majesty, the faithfulness, the love of God. I want to ask you, in the midst of whatever you're dealing with right now, are you taking time to look up? Because when you take time to look up, when you focus on God, you trade in what you say about you with what God says about you. When you take time to look up, you trade in what you say, what you believe, maybe some of the lies that you've bought into about yourself for the truth of who God says you truly, truly are. I want to proclaim the truth of who you are. When, when you say something, I want to let you know what God says about you. You say, I can't figure it out. But God says, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I will direct your steps. You say, I'm just too tired. But God says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, I will give you rest. You say, it's impossible. But God says in Luke 18, 27, all things are possible. You say, nobody loves me. But God says, John 3, 16, I love you. You say, I can't forgive myself. But God says, I forgive you. Romans 8, 1. You say, it's just not worth it. But God says, Romans 8, 28, oh, it will be worth it. You say, I just can't go on. God says, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. You say, I just can't do it. God says, Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Jesus Christ. You say, I'm not able. God says, I am able. 2 Corinthians 9.8. And finally, you say, I feel all alone. God says, Hebrews 13.5, I am always with you. I will never leave you 
and never forsake you. We're going to celebrate communion right now. And the reason we're going to celebrate communion first is because Jesus instructs us to remember his sacrifice, his body and his blood shed for us. But it's actually not for Jesus' sake that we celebrate communion. It's for our sake. Now think about this. Times when you're down, when you're struggling, when you're low, these are the times when God seems a million miles away, right? It's the time when you feel very little connection to God. This is the time where you almost need to like wake up your body. And communion is a tangible, physical reminder using your senses to remind you of something that maybe you're not feeling right now, you're not believing right now, but that is that Jesus loves you, that he's with you. And when you take the bread, which represents his body, and you take the cup, which represents his blood, and you eat and you drink, that is the tangible reminder that Jesus Christ is in you, his spirit in you, and you are in Christ. Now, why this is so critical is because the times when we, when we're, we're struggling so bad, we have no energy, no motivation. We just can't go on. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. This is why we celebrate communion. Also, what an incredible reminder of the sacrificial love of God for us, that he was willing to die for us. And finally, if, if you're frustrated, maybe you feel so misunderstood because of what you're going through and you feel like nobody really gets it. Nobody really understands what you're going through. Nobody really fully understands depression and how difficult it is. There is one who does because he came to this earth and he knows what it means to suffer. God knows. God is with you. God loves you. And God knows fully what you're going through. So as you just hold these elements, I just want you to hold these elements right now. And before we take the body and the blood of Jesus, I want to remind you of who you are in Jesus Christ. I just want you to take a moment and receive this truth. Even if you don't feel it, even if you don't believe it, just ask God, please open up my spirit to receive the truth of who I am in you. This is who you are. You are strong. Psalm 18, 25. You are chosen. John 15, 16. You are forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7. You are created with a divine purpose, Jeremiah 29, 11. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, 14. You are never alone, Matthew 28, 20. And you are loved by God, John 3, 16. Now let's take and eat and drink together the body and the blood of Christ. Now, I just want you to just sit in this moment for a second. Before you get up, before you start thinking about the rest of your day, let's just sit right here and take a minute 
And I want you to just ask God to speak to you through this song and remind you of who you are in him. I'll be back in just a minute. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you that in spite of what we may think or feel or believe about ourselves or believe about you, that it's what you say, it's what you think about us that counts. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your belief in us. We thank you for being with us, God, and we are counting on you through the struggles of this life. God, please, please help us. Thank you for hearing us as we cry out. Help us as we try and trade in the negative for the positive, the lies for the truth. And and thank you, God, for casting our gaze upward on you so that we remember who we are. In Christ's name, amen.